I think I recognize, and you all do too, that when people are new to the faith, uh, new to the church, or perhaps long in the church, they are especially expecting us to say number two, right? Be good. I mean, that's, you know, I remember um, we were in St. Louis for 30 years, and I pretty much ran the same jogging path for a lot of that time. So you get to know the people who jog at the same time you do, right? So I remember a guy who uh, over time learned that I was a, a preacher, and uh, he, uh, he wasn't um, a regular attender. He'd been raised in a setting where he'd been abused by a, a religious institution. So we had very little use for the church. But, you know, we would cross enough times and develop a relationship so he said, well, you know, he said, I do respect what, you, what you're doing. You know, he said, I, I recognize, you know, that I should, be, I should be better. And you go to church to learn to be good. And I thought, actually, that's not why I think you go to church. Now, I hope that's a byproduct of going to church. But the primary reason we go to church is to become dependent, right? Is to have faith in the goodness of another. And uh, we are responding to that. But that, that very basic gospel message is not our human instinct, right? I mean, after all, why did Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is Satan tempted by saying, you shall be like, you'll be, if you eat that, you'll be like God. From the beginning, you know, the human instinct is to say, I can fix this. You know, I can, I can be my own redeemer. I can be God, right? And messages that are entirely be like or be good are actually feeding that instinct, right? You fix the problem, you are the solution, you are the redeemer. But I want to remind you of, of what we know, should know, as in the church. We say the uniqueness of Christianity, what makes it different from all other religions, is that every other religion in the world says, what you do, or what state of consciousness you can reach, gets you up to God. You do something or think something to get up to God. What does Christianity alone say? Not that you get up to God, but what? That God came to you. Because you couldn't get up to God. It's not in you to do. And messages that are entirely be like or be good, which our culture, our family, our friends, our own hearts expect us to be saying, are actually feeding that instinct. You are going to be like God. You are going to fix the problem all by yourself. And, and we have to say, that's not the message. And if we, if we become consistent in doing that, if we say, you know, it's the gospel that's on display. From the beginning, God is showing us how we cannot fix the problem. God has to provide for people who cannot provide. If that's what we're seeing as we read the scriptures, then we're not just preparing ourselves, but those that we disciple, including our own children. Now, think what happens when so many of our, of our children, some of you, you go off to university and you meet the, you know, the, the really smart professor who says to you when he learns that you're a Christian, oh, you want me to be like the people of the Bible? Did you ever read the Bible? The murderers, the adulterers, the genociders, and our kids feel like their faith gets wiped away because they've only heard the sanitized Sunday school version growing up in our churches. What, what if we had prepared them? And for the professor, did you ever read the Bible and all the messed up? What if our kids were ready to say, yes, they needed a redeemer. 
as do I. And if they're really bold, as do you, Mr. Professor. Yes, I do know that they were a mess. Yes, I do. That was the purpose for which this was written, to point us all towards someone other than ourselves. Now, I'll say it again. These messages, be like and be good, are not wrong in themselves. They are wrong by themselves. But the message that eludes us in remembering that is the last of the deadly bees, which is some form of be more. Be more disciplined in particular. Because we all know what happens in discipleship groups, right? We tell people the goal of this week's lesson is that you should read your Bible more. You should pray more. You should go to church more. Especially you should go to my church more. (laughs) What's wrong with the more message? How much more will be enough? I mean, when will God really be happy? If I pray once a day, three times a day, seven times a day? How much more is actually going to qualify me for the love, acceptance, approval of God? What's the answer? That, that is a bottomless pit. You will, you will never fill it up with your more. And messages that are just telling people to do more and more and more and more ultimately, ultimately destroy them. And, you know, whole movements can be built on some of this instruction. You know, you should have a 20-minute quiet time every morning. Well, maybe 30. Well, maybe 40 minutes. Actually, you should go to the mountain. Higher mountain. Darker closet. When's God going to be happy? Well, what you do is not the answer to God's pleasure, Right? It is ultimately your faith in what God has done, and then you respond to it. And when your heart is set on fire for him, when it's love for God that motivates you, then what you're doing is not trying to bribe God, not trying to get on his better side, but you're actually responding in relationship to God, responding to the goodness of the gospel, not trying to earn it. Now, number two under be more disciplined Uh, if you're taking in your notes there, is not contending again that all text mentions Jesus. All texts do not mention Jesus, but all have some relation to his redemption. So if if we're not simply saying be like, be good, or be more something, but we're saying, I'm going to explain to you how this text relates to the grace of God that culminates in Christ's work, Uh, then there are certain implications for us. It, number three is expository. Expository just means explaining, okay? So explaining, preaching or teaching or disciple-making, saying what God says, is Christ-centered. Jesus, Luke 24 said, all the scriptures were about him. So if I'm gonna follow Jesus' lesson in what the scriptures are about, then wherever I am in the Bible, I need to kind of show how it relates to him. Now, I'm not saying it mentions him. Please, let's not go there. You know, I'm gonna... You know, get out my decoder ring and figure out how that word is about Jesus. No, that's, that's not the point. But we are saying somehow this text is helping me understand the grace of God that culminates in Christ. Now, I'm going to say the most simple way of seeing that, and then because I know you're getting huge academic credits for being here. No. <laughs> we'll go a little deeper. But what's, what's a way that we can see 
how all the Bible is relating the message of grace that culminates in Christ. One way we can do that is by putting on our gospel glasses. No matter where you are in the Bible, before you read that passage, you put on your gospel glasses. And your gospel glasses, each lens, is really just a very simple question. The first lens is what does this text tell me about the nature of God? Now, that's a fair question. Isn't that a fair question of any text? What does this text tell me about the nature of God? The second is what does this text tell me about the nature of humanity? Is that a fair question? What does this text tell me about human people? Now, let's go back to Samson. If I'm telling the story of Samson, I'm learning something. This is in the period of the judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, in which case they're turning away from whom? They're turning away from God, right? They are not following his commands. They are saying, we're going to figure this out. So God said, fine, I'm done with the people of Israel. I'm not going to help them anymore. Is that what happened? No. He let them experience the consequence of their rebellion, and then he redeemed them. And they turned back to him, and then the period of the judges, what did they do? (laughs) They turned to themselves again. And he goes on over and over and over and over again as God keeps saying, if you're just going to do it your way, you're going to suffer, but I'm going to hold you. And I'm going to return you to me, and I will never leave you or forsake you. What am I learning about the nature of God from the account of Samson? That he is faithful, that he is strong that he's a redeemer. What am I learning about humanity when I look at someone strong and clever like Samson? People tend to depend on what? Their strength. They're figuring it out. Is there any great? So God says, I will not leave or forsake you. And people say, I'll fix it myself. If people say, I'll fix it myself, but God says, I will never leave you, is there any grace there? Yes. God is not just telling us how to fix the problem. He is telling us of someone who rescues us from ourselves. And now you say, what if my my lesson this week is on the Ten Commandments? Now just imagine one. You shall not steal. Let's see. S-T-E-A-L, J-E-S-U-S. Stealing's about Jesus, no. (laughs) How do you get Jesus out of, you shall not, well, you know, God, when he explains through Moses and later through the apostle Paul what it means not to steal, he says, you shall not ever take anything that is not your own. You You shall not take big things. You shall not take little things. You may not even take somebody else's reputation by speaking ill of them. If it is not yours, you may not take it. You shall not ever take anything that is not your own. Stealing is bad. Do not do it. All right, let's have the benediction. No, you can't. No, no, wait, 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 wait. Something's missing here. What is missing? The grace of God. But the grace of God isn't in the passage. All it said was, you shall not steal. All right, let's do it. Let's put on our gospel glasses. Um, 
the commandments are the holy law of God. They are perfect, we are told. Well, if, if that's the case, what does a holy command teach me about the character of God? What does a holy command teach me about the character of God? That God is holy, right? Now, at the same time, if the commandment that is holy says, you shall not ever take anything that is not your own. You shall not download what is not your own. You shall not take what is not your own. You shall not speak of people in such a way that you take away their name or repute. You shall not ever take anything that is not your own. What do you learn about yourself from the command? God is holy, and what, what do you learn about you? <laughs> you are definitely not, right? Uh, God is holy, and you're a thief. There's a problem here. There is a problem you cannot fix any more than the man with muddy hands can make his shirt clean. You cannot fix the problem. Who's got to fix the problem? God's got to fix the problem. And that is actually what the Apostle Paul tells us. He says the law, Galatians 3, was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The law was not just meant to give us moral instruction. It is that. That's not the end of the law. What did we what were we told in the New Testament is the end of the law, the tell us, the end, the purpose, the point. What is the end of the law? Jesus said, I am the end of the law. I am the purpose for which it was given. It is pointing to me. He said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you search the scriptures diligently because in them you think you will find eternal life. But the scriptures speak of me. I am the end of the I am the one to whom they are pointing. Now, again, I'm not trying to make Jesus magically appear in you shall not steal. I'm reminding us of the redemptive context. All we do is put on our redemptive, you can do this in any passage, any, any, any passage. Not just saying, as is our temptation, what duty or doctrine is here. That's good, that's necessary, right? In itself, that's not wrong. By itself, that's the problem. What is the redemptive context? And if we'll put on our gospel glasses and I'll say, what is this passage teaching me about God? And what is this text teaching me about me? You're gonna find there's some dimension of God coming to the rescue. He's got to do, and then we respond with be like, be good, be more. We are responding, but we are not gaining, we're not earning, we're not bribing God. You know, none of those motivations work anymore. People are responding out of love and joy, the joy of the Lord that is our strength, because of the grace of God that's on display. Because if we'll look with our gospel glasses on, we will begin to recognize, no matter where I am in the scriptures, if I'm saying, what does this tell me about God, and what does this tell about me, there's a gap. Some of you may have traveled in England, all the reports about the queen's death now, but if you're ever in England, you know that when you come off the, 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 the subway or any train, as soon as you get ready to step off the train, there, there's always a sign that's right at your feet. What, what does it say, Rob? It says, mind the gap. <laughs> you know, mind, mind the gap, right? Why? If we will put on our gospel glasses, no matter where we are in the scriptures, we will say, mind the gap. <laughs> there's a gap here between what God actually requires or provides and what you can provide. There's a gap. 
And that gap is going to keep us from just talking about moral behavior. This message is about being a better person. Okay, well, that's part of the message. But that is not the full message. Why? You gotta mind the gap. There's a problem here between God's true nature and our true nature. And God is always pointing me forward, pointing me to his provision, not mine alone. Now, let's do the heavy lifting for just a minute. There are ways in which God is making it clear that these Old Testament scriptures are pointing us forward to the work of Christ. We recognize there are clearly some passages that are predictive of the work of Christ. The way that we kind of begin to see the person and ministry of Christ is by recognizing some passages are clearly predictive of the Jesus who was to come. And uh, what, what am I thinking about? What, what are the kind of, where do you see predictive passages in the Old Testament? Where do you see them? In Isaiah. Can we say any of the major prophets? Any of the minor prophets? So, you know, kind of the end of the Old Testament, these books here, you know, that we recognize the prophets are prophesying the coming of Christ. Are there any other places in the Bible where Jesus is predicted? In the Psalms, right? So we know kind of, you know, in here, you know, there are the Messianic Psalms. You know, Psalm, Psalm 1, 2, 8, 16, 32. You know, we know that there are these Messianic Psalms that are talking about the work of Christ to come. Now, in our categories of biblical material, there are prophecies. There's what's called wisdom, poetry, or wisdom literature. And we recognize that both categories of Scripture contain predictions of the work of Christ. In that sense, they're about Christ to come. Any other places in the Old Testament that you have predictions of Christ? Thank you. So Genesis, remember we had Genesis 3.15, right? Or things like, do you remember the end of the book of Genesis? We're told something about Judah, right? The scepter shall never depart from Judah. The promised one out of Genesis 3.15 will come through the line of Judah. Through whom comes David? Through who comes Jesus, all right? So way back here, we're being, now these are the books of Moses, all right? And the book of Deuteronomy tells us if there's one going to come who's greater than Moses, who will lead his people out of a greater captivity, right? So there's one greater than Moses who will, there are predictions of Jesus. We've lost one, but you said it. You said not only books of Moses, but you said histories, historical books. Um, once we learn about David, what did we learn? Second Samuel 7, right? There's going to be one who comes from the lineage of David who will have a universal and eternal kingdom. David messes up. God remains faithful to provide that one from the line of David who will have the universal and eternal kingdom. So what have we just said? Out of the books of Moses, out of the historical books, out of the wisdom literature, out of the major prophets, out of the minor prophets, come predictions of Jesus. What did Jesus say in Luke 24? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he revealed what was said in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So one way that we, if you will, get to Jesus, if that's a way of thinking about it, you, you get beyond human performance to dependence upon God's provision is by recognizing some passages are clearly predictive. Now, we're, we're not trying to force predictions where they're not, but 
clearly there are some passages that are predictive of God's word. And if that's what we're telling people about, if that's how we're discipling them, we make clear that that prediction, Genesis 3.15 or so whatever, is about Christ. A broader category, because even though predictions, we all kind of like prophecies, that's not the bulk of the Old Testament. All right, Actually, very few verses in total. There's many more verses that are preparatory, preparing. They are preparatory for the work of Christ. Lots of the Old Testament is preparing us for the work of Christ. Now, just imagine, you'll know this from the New Testament, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking down the road toward him. And John says to those around him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Actually, it's a man walking down the road toward him. But he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, how do you know what that means? Because you've been prepared. By 1,500 years of sacrifices since the time of Moses, right? Where sacrifices of atonement were made with lambs without blemish to take away the sin of the people. So when John says, behold the Lamb of God, we have been prepared. So if I'm back in the Old Testament and it says, how did God atone for the sins of his people when they did not obey his commands? He said, you take a lamb without blemish and sacrifice him, and without the shedding of blood, there is no sacrifice for sin, but by the shedding of blood, there is atonement. Not perfectly, because you gotta keep offering those sacrifices. But when a perfect atonement was made, the writer of Hebrews said, when there was one sacrifice for all, the great high priest sat down. The sacrificing was done. It was all over at that point. How do we understand all that? We've been prepared. Can you think of other ways that we are prepared to understand elements of Jesus' life? The writer of Hebrews and the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as our Passover. What is that about? What's the Passover about? When, and when did he do that protecting of his people? Way back here, right? During the Exodus, right? Put the blood on the door, lintel and doorposts and the angel of death will pass over. Now, way over here, we are told Jesus was our Passover. By his shed blood, the wrath that could have been poured on us God passed over. Now, in other words, we're being provided a vocabulary and concepts by what's happening in the Old Testament so that we'll understand what Jesus did. What was the Passover? What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was God said, I will come and I will dwell among my people. And then you get way over here to the book of John, and we are told that Jesus, when he came, came and he tabernacled among his people. Tabernacled? What does that mean? I know what it means. God came to dwell with his people. That's why John uses that language. It's the Emmanuel principle. Remember, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means being interpreted means what? God with us. How do I know that? Isaiah talked about Emmanuel to come, and then we are told he actually came to be with us, just like he said. And 
we are prepared. Now, everything I just said to you is a, a, a positive, okay? It's a bridge, right? Things bridge our understanding. So the kingship, the prophets, uh, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the release from bondage, you know, in Egypt, all those are ways that we are being prepared to understand who Jesus is and what he would do. We've been prepared in many ways. All these bridges. And so if I'm talking about the Exodus, not to mention this, this was done in a greater way by Jesus, right? So that the apostle Paul would say, you're no longer a slave, right? How do I, why do you pick that terminology? Because it's what we've been prepared for in the Old Testament. We were being prepared. Now those are the bridges, Almost everybody in the church gets that. You know what they don't get? We're not just being prepared positively, but negatively. There are not just bridges in the Old Testament. There are dead ends. Over and over again, despite the fact that the Bible is teaching us good examples, the Bible is saying this does not work. We've already said one of it, one of those, right? Time of the judges, everybody does what's right in his own eyes. How's that work? That does not work. If people say, well, the law's a bad thing. That's the Old Testament. That was the mean God. And there's the nice God in the New Testament. So, no, 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 no. Listen, when God gave the law to his people, he said, here's a good and safe path. Here's a good path. It'll go well for you in life. If, you, you know, if you're faithful to your spouse, if you honor your father and mother, if you don't steal, here's a good path. Uh, and, and by the way, when you get off that path, life don't go so good. So keep the commands. The people were given the commands, but in the time of the judges, they thought they knew better. Everyone does what's right. Okay, that doesn't work. But that's not the only place that we are taught things that don't work. All right, now just imagine 1,500 years since the Exodus. What happens? God says, I have redeemed you from the house of bondage. I have redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. Now follow my commands. And so the people keep God's commands and they never stray. Is that what happens? No. All right, guys, I will provide a tabernacle and be with you and dwell among you. And as you offer sacrifices and atonement for your sin, it will be fine between you and me. Even when you mess up, I'll provide a way that you can make atonement and know my grace. One little problem here, the priests steal the sacrifices. <laughs> okay, well, just do what's right in your own eyes. God says, you're not gonna follow me, just do it. Well, that's the period of the judges. Well, that doesn't go so well. So finally, the people said, we're not gonna do what's right in our own eyes. Let's just choose a king. We'll take our tallest, handsomest, best, strongest guy, and we'll put him in charge, and that will fix everything. Does that fix everything? No, in fact, that king turns his back on God, as do subsequently every king to some extent. And so we recognize the human kings don't work. After all, God said to Samuel, when the people chose their own king, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. When they're making their king, they're rejecting me. But listen, here's what I'll do. Because the kings mess up, I'll send prophets. And the prophets will advise the kings and tell them what to do according to God's word. 
and, and, and that will be okay. One, one little problem here, what do the people do to the prophets? They kill them. <laughs> you know what? We're gonna need a better law keeper. We're gonna need a better atonement. We're gonna need better priests. We're gonna need a better judge. We're gonna need a better king. We are gonna need a better prophet. For 1,500 years, God has said, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this, but this. So when Jesus comes, we recognize he is the greater, the perfect law keeper, lamb, priest, prophet, king. He is the one who fulfills everything. Remember Jesus said he didn't come to end the law, but he was the fulfillment of the law. Now, I will tell you, that will blow people's minds in the church who think that, you know, the only reason we have the Bible is to teach us to be good. And we have all those good people in the Bible. You say, no, actually, do you recognize that the reason Israel was messing up so often is God is actually saying, not this, but me. I am the answer. After all, why did God choose Israel to be his chosen people? Why, why did God choose Israel? Because they were the nicest, best, sweetest people in the world. Is that why God chose Israel? No. He said, no, he said, they are the dinkiest and the most stiff-necked of all people, if I can save them, I can save anybody. <laughs> oh, I get it. It's not about qualifying for God. It's about the grace for people who don't qualify. That was the message that was unfolding and is meant to grab our hearts, right? Because out of the heart are the issues of life. And when our hearts are set on Christ, then we respond in obedience. So often what is preparing us in the Old Testament as well as in the New, for our hearts to be set on God is recognizing not only are some passages predictive of Jesus or preparing us for the work of Christ, many passages are reflective, reflective of the grace of God. Many passages are reflective of the grace of God. Now imagine this. Elijah has this great victory over the priests of Baal. Do you remember that? I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, priests of Baal supposed to bring down fire from heaven, and, uh, you know, they, they, they dance around the altar and urge Baal to bring fire down to consume the sacrifice, and Elijah kind of said, well, you know, maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's asleep. Um, maybe he's gone on vacation, because he's sure not coming down, and, and they fail even though they slice their bodies, dance to exhaustion, doesn't work. But Elijah says, you know what? I want you to take buckets of water and I want you to drown that sacrifice. And you just make it impossible to burn. And he prays to God and what happens? Fire from heaven. And the priests of Baal are consumed as well in that great victory. Elijah has a Great spiritual victory. And then he comes down from the mountain. And Jezebel says, what? You killed my priest. I'm going to get you. 
and your little dog, no, I'm, and <laughs> I'm going to get you. And what does Elijah do? Great man of God, just had the great victory. What's he do? He runs into the desert in fear of Jezebel and hides. Well, at that point, God's had enough of him, you know, so God turns his back and walks. Is that what happens? No. This prophet who has had this great spiritual victory and then has this great spiritual fall is fed by God in the desert. And then when he asks to see God's glory, God actually, remember, puts him in the cleft of the rock and passes in front of him so that this fearful, coward, abandoning prophet sees the glory of God. Any grace there? You better believe it. What are we understanding? We're seeing not mention of Jesus. You know, that, I'm not, you know the, the sacrifice was, no, that's not what that's about. It, it's not about, you know, Jesus was in the glory cloud. It's not that. What is it? I'm understanding the character of God on display. He's taking care of people who cannot take care of themselves. He's providing for someone who does not deserve it. Grace is on display. Now, I wish I could just create a list for you, and maybe you can do that in your own mind. What are ways in the Old Testament that we're not seeing Jesus mentioned, but we are seeing the grace of God reflected? Okay? So, um, the people of Israel, um, they have just been delivered from slavery, and they've seen the the chariots and the horses of the Egyptians drown in the sea. They've, they've been delivered. Hooray! One little problem, they're in the desert. And there's not food to eat. And they begin to complain to Moses. Moses, um, there's not food out here. It, it, it would have been better to stay in Egypt. Uh, let's go back to Egypt. Now, remember... God has just delivered these people. And they want to go back and they want to not just go back to Egypt, but worship the gods of Egypt. So God abandons them. Now what does God do? He provides manna in the wilderness every day. Um, and he provides meat as well, which we often forget. Any grace there? What are you learning? Put on your gospel glasses. What am I learning about God? What am I learning about people? Grace is on display. It's being reflected in how God's. Anytime that God provides food for the hungry, strength for the weary, rest for the weary, strength for the weak. Anytime that God provides forgiveness for the unforgivable, anytime he claims a people who do not deserve it, Anytime he rescues people who cannot rescue themselves, anytime he gives a victory to the few, what I'm learning is something about God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves. The grace of God is unfolding. And the longer we go, the more we understand how great that grace is. So much so that by the time you get almost to Christ, those last chapters and sections of the Old Testament, where the people of God have so sinned, they have turned their backs entirely upon God. Even at that point, God says, but I will send a redeemer. At their worst moment, he is at his best moment. 
any grace there. If we will put on our gospel glasses, we'll learn to see it. How is grace being reflected here? God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves. Finally, one way in which we are going to be helping people, can you all see that at all? Try to get it. Finally, one way is some passages are resultant of the work of Christ. Some passages are resultant of the work of Christ. So, um, when we're in the, the New Testament, we are told to pray. And you know how these messages go. Uh, you should pray more, longer, better, use the words of Scripture, use the Acts acrostic. You know, you can't, your prayers are not being heard by God. Here's how you break the ceiling. Here's how you get through. Do these things, and, and you'll get through to God. We might as well be Hindus. You know, just turn your prayer wheel a few more times and you'll get through to God. Getting your prayers through to God, if it just depends upon you doing a bunch of right stuff, um, is forgetting somebody who takes your prayers to God. What is, the, what is the reason that you and I can boldly approach the throne of grace and ask for help in time of need? What's the only reason we can do that? Because of Jesus, because the great high priest has gone ahead of us into the heavenlies to make intercession for us at the right hand of God. Now, what's the impact of that? Romans 8, 26, we don't even know how to pray. Aren't you glad an apostle said that? (laughs) We don't even know how to pray. And so the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep to utter, which means I'm going asleep in my own prayer. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit is saying to the Father, Father, hear him. Listen to her. Her heart is weak, but, but you know this heart and you will claim this person and help this person. She doesn't even know how to pray. But Lord, what we need is this. And God, who knows the mind of the Spirit, intercedes in accord with his will so that, Romans 8, 28, otherwise known as the Christian two by four, right? All things work together for good. Oh, man, you know, I just, had the, I just lost my job. Wow, all things work together for, you know, boom. You know, well, thank you. Now that, now I, f- I feel better now, you know. You know, because we totally extract the verse from its context, right? We don't even know how to pray. We don't even know how to pray. But the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and conforms them to the will of God so that all things work together for good for them that love God and are called according to his prayer. I don't even know how to pray. And God is bending the universe for my good and his eternal purposes according to my, how does he do? I don't know. I don't even know how to pray. But But the Holy Spirit is appealing to God through the blood of Christ who sits at the right hand of God and God the Father is answering in such a way that all things are working for an eternal good. That's even better than a pony. You know, that's better than a bicycle. I mean, this is fantastic. And, And it's not something that, you know, I'm kind of making God, you know, do something, right? You know, that I'm I'm gonna use the right number of words and I'm gonna why? As a result of the great high priest who sits at the right hand of God, I can pray with boldness and confidence. I, 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 I can pray, I can worship, 
I can love, right? Why, why does the Bible take so much import on do not avenge yourselves, right? God will avenge us. He knows it's right. Because, but if you do it, what's going to happen? You will create bitterness in your heart that will ruin your own heart and life. Bitterness is the acid that eats its own container. And if you're not depending upon God, but as a result of knowing that he will vindicate his word, he will vindicate his people, that you're able to live in joy, that is your strength, that allows you still to minister to your family without bitterness and hurt because you're released by the grace of God as a result of his provision You live for him and live through him as a result of what he has done. This is seeing the Bible in the context of the fulfillment of the grace of God in Christ. So there I'm on this side of God's victorious work in Christ, in, in which I'm saying, listen, there are passages that are predicting or preparing or reflective of his goodness, or if I'm this side of the cross, where I'm saying, I'm living as a result of what Christ has done, I recognize that that any behavior, any attitude is still rooted in the grace of God to whom I'm responding. Now, again, if if all this is too complicated, I'm gonna go back and say, how do you you make sense of all this? Um, You put on, what are you gonna put on? Your gospel glasses. And if you're saying, wait, 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 is this predictive or preparatory? Is it a bridge or a dead end? Uh, you know, uh, is it resultant? Is it, re- eh, you can do this. You don't have to go all that path, right? It's just saying you've got academic credentials now, so you know what's behind it, right? But what do you actually know? I'm just going to put on my gospel glasses. I'm teaching young people. Uh, I'm teaching a discipleship group. I'm teaching Sunday school. Whatever I'm doing, I'm saying, what does this tell me about God? what does this tell me about me? And somewhere, somehow, it is relating. God is providing for people who cannot provide for themselves. And we are living in response to that grace of God that is unfolding in all the scriptures. And that makes makes our work a blessing to God's people. It's not just saying, more duty, more doctrine. And more duty, more doctrine. You just got to do better and no more. What if we say, ah, oh, here's how God is providing grace for people like us. Ah, oh, now when I know that, I actually want to live for him. And, and, and it may have some strength to do it. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just stop before we go forward and say, what, what questions have you got so far? Okay, so thoughts that you have, questions that you may have for where we are right now. You understand how to mind the gap? Put on your gospel glasses. Yes. You still want to do more. You still want them to do it.
you're, I think I think you're in exactly the right place. We're gonna, you know, when we go a little further, we'll say, when we actually get to applying any scripture, there, there's there's ultimately four things to to make our communication to God's people full. We have to say what to do, read your Bible more, where to do it, not, not just someday down the road. I mean, it's a regular part of life, but why and how. You're, we're, I'm really talking motivation. When I say this is, the, all these B messages are necessary they are, they are good in themselves, but not by themselves, which means ultimately the grace of God must be motivation because if we don't make it the motivation, then people will assume it is, um, um, it is what we get as a result of what we do instead of, no, grace is on this side of your duty, not a result of your duty. So it is the motivation for what we do. But to experience that grace, to, to, to really recognize the Bible reading is a, is a way of seeing the wonder and the goodness of God, defeating your heart and soul on the goodness of God, rather than a way to pay off the ogre in the sky, right? That makes all the difference. So am I actually feeding my love or, or keeping away from the ogre? So motivation becomes absolutely critical in taking what are actually good things, be good, be like, you know, actually good things in themselves, but not by themselves. It means we have to provide motivation as well as instruction. So you were saying it, I think, just exactly where we're going. Because we don't want to say, the op- don't read your Bible. You know, that's not where we are. We recognize God, God's words a lamp to my feet, light into my path. It helps me. Unless I'm doing it to bribe God. That hurts me, right? So I, I think the example in the Old Testament, you know, the people of God offering sacrifices, just as they were told to do. And God says, that is a stench in my nostrils. But God, you told us to do it. Why, why is that wrong? Because you're trying to pay me off, you know, so that I will bless you, rather than in response for the grace that's yours. So... Um, the theologians will get there, say the imperatives, what we do, read, be good, you know, read your body, uh, more discipline, um, be better, be like somebody. Those imperatives, what you're supposed to do, are based on the indicatives, who you are by the grace of God, and the order is not reversible. And what the human instinct says is, I'll do something so God will be nice to me, which is saying... God will love me, I'll be a loved person of God if I do these things. In which case, the indicative, who we are, is based on what we do. And the gospel is the opposite. What we do is based on who we are. So, yeah, we still want to tell people the imperatives. We still want to tell them what God's word requires, but that is not, my words again, necessary, but not sufficient. So context of redemption is always in the picture too. But you said it just right, and we'll, we'll keep going that direction.
It's a little shocking to say the message is not just be good. You know, if, if I hadn't had the rest of the time with you, I wouldn't have said that. You, know, you have to put it you know, kind of like, it's just not sufficient. It is necessary. It is not sufficient just to tell people to be good, even though that's what people actually expect you to say. Oh, pastor, that was a great message today. You really made me feel bad. <laughs> Why is that good? You know? um, but they expect it. You know? they, they sometimes expect us to teach them the Bible in a way that just kind of only heaps more duty and doctrine upon them. Other thoughts? You want to keep going? Okay, well, let's, let's go to the next, uh, the next page and see how far we get. Um, one, of the, one of the most revolutionary paintings of all time was Michelangelo Caravaggio's Supper at Emmaus. Now, I've already told you about the road to Emmaus, remember? Luke describes the disciples not recognizing Jesus, but Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he revealed what was said in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's on the road. But eventually, they get to Emmaus, <laughs> and they have supper there. And there is a moment at which the disciples who have not recognized Jesus suddenly say, it's Jesus, and they recognize him. Now, do you remember what Jesus does? What is that very Christ-like thing he does that they suddenly go, that's him. What does he do? He breaks the bread, right? And in the breaking of bread, they suddenly recognize that is the risen Lord. And it's almost like a snapshot, that moment that Caravaggio captures, right? That Jesus is breaking the bread and the disciples suddenly recognize who he is. But what makes the painting so revolutionary is that Caravaggio is breaking all the conventions of his time, which means, among other things, neither Jesus nor his disciples have halos, <laughs> Uh, not only do they not have halos, they don't have beards. And in that time of Caravaggio, if you had a beard, you were an aristocrat. If you did not have a beard, it meant that you were a working person, so you could wash off the, the sawdust or the fish guts, you know. And, and Jesus, uh, nor his disciples in the picture, have beards, which means Caravaggio captures them just Kind of like a carpenter and fisherman, you know, just kind of like ordinary people, you know. And, and you wouldn't do such a thing, you know, prior to that. But beyond that, what makes the painting so revolutionary is that, that, that the disciples do not just kind of sit back in glassy-eyed wonder, this kind of, you know, this, these static figures. Oh, it's Jesus. Isn't this wonderful, you know? Instead, what Caravaggio pictures is the disciples are rising from their chairs. Their muscles are taut. One actually reaches toward you as the onlooker and tries to pull you into contact with Jesus. As if to say, if this is the fulfillment of the ages, if this is the long prophesied Messiah, if this is the desire of nations who is now risen and with us, then we have to do something. <laughs> and that we have to do something 
is should be our response when we say, if all the Bible is unfolding the grace of God that culminates in the work of Christ, we're not just supposed to sit back and glass the hour. Oh, well, that's, that's just wonderful. And we kind of put mercy up on a shelf and we say, well, well, but just admire that. You know? Instead we say, no, why are we being told these things? We are being told these things because the joy of the Lord is our strength. We are being told these things so that we will respond in obedience to the goodness of God. It's what the Apostle Paul would do in Romans chapter 12, right? He's just spent 11 chapters saying, here's what God has done in Christ since Adam. 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And then he says, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He doesn't say you're going to bribe God by that, right? What does he say? Here's what God has done respond. And what we are doing when we're discipling people is we're saying, if you have seen how great is the grace of God, look look how unrelenting has been his love. Look how resolute his grace. Look how determined he was to save you. Your heart wants to respond. And so we need to say, how do we help people to respond in ways that are helpful? So we're going to talk about application. How do we, because I will just tell you, the average person says, well, there's grace and there's duty, and the two shall never meet. You know, grace means you don't have to do anything. Duty means you do, and, and no, I said, no, 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 listen, that's not the way the Bible presents things. The grace of God has been so great, we respond to it. We don't earn it, we respond to it. Now, the goal of this particular time we'll spend is to see how grace motivates and enables powerful application of biblical truth for obedience and hope. Now, you're not all training to be preachers, but um, in the school in which I trained, um, our, our professor uh, had been a formy, former um, Army Air Paratrooper Colonel. And uh, even as he was teaching us to preach, uh, the former paratrooper colonel kept a lot of that bearing in how he taught us, which meant in plain terms, we were afraid of him. <laughs> and, um, and he used it at times. And he would say things like this. He would say, gentlemen, I don't care how big your church gets. I don't care how much people applaud your sermon and tell you what a great, pre- tell you what a great preacher you are. I don't care if the crowds applause at the end of every sermon you preach. I want you to understand you have to walk out of that sanctuary and I am sitting on the back row. And when you leave, you have to pass me. My arms are crossed. I have a frown on my face. And I got a question for you. So what? So they wandered 40 years in the desert. So what? So the walls fell down. So what? So Jesus died on the cross. So what? What does that have to do with me? We're about to talk about application. We've talked about how we see the grace of God in all the scriptures But clearly, God is not telling us that that I have been your God and I have redeemed you so so that we will just kind of lie back and do nothing about it. There is a purpose. 
But to understand the purpose, we need to understand some level of what application is if it's truly honoring the Scripture. Now, some things are just obvious. If you say, what is application? Item A there. It's the duty God requires of man. So we're not eliminating duty. We've said it's not sufficient to honor God, but you need to know what it is. So application is still on the page. God uh, has a duty that he requires of his people. Those of you who have maybe some Presbyterian or Baptist or Anglican background may remember those old catechisms. You know, what do the scriptures principally teach? What do the scriptures principally teach? What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Application is, and what duty God requires of man. That's what application is. But I like the item B there, which is a little more contemporary. I like this definition. Application is the personal consequence, the personal consequence of the truth that we explain from the text. It's the personal consequence. I like that. Now, you and I have both sat in Sunday school classes or sermons where we said, man, that, that is really a smart person who just taught us for the last three hours. I mean, for, <laughs> you know, seemed like three hours. That was really smart. That was really informative. What does it have to do with you? I haven't a clue, right? It was the information dump, right? It was, the, it was just kind of like lots of stuff. Okay, so I know now who Obadiah was. What am I supposed to do with that? And what I'm ultimately going to say to you is we can spend a lot of time thinking that discipleship is about just explaining data from the Scriptures, right? I'll just give you meaning. I'll just give you more information. And what I want you to hear me say is discipleship is not the same as preparing people for a lecture test, right? It's having people understand the significance of the text. Um, if we were in a theology class, we would try to make the distinction between meaning and significance, right? Meaning and significance. Uh, meaning, um, they, they walked around Jericho, you know, seven times. What does that mean? It means they walked around Jericho seven times. Yeah. Okay. What is the significance of that? It seemed foolish. Didn't seem like it would accomplish anything. But it was God's instruction, so they followed it. What's the significance of that? God may be requiring of me things that don't seem to make much sense, at least not as the world measures things. And it may not seem to accomplish anything. You know, our young people, mom and dad, you know, they're not going to stop making movies like that because I don't go see it. It won't make any difference if I don't, you know. It's not going to change anything. But God requires it. So there is something that has significance to us if we will explain its significance. What, what I want you to hear me say is, if people do not know significance, they do not know what the text means. Oh, they still know that they went around seven times. But if they don't know the significance of that, they don't really know what the text means. If we're discipling people, it's not enough to do the data dump. We have to tell people what is the significance of this for their lives. That's, that's real application, okay? And we often forget 
because we think we've done a good job of giving lots of information about the text. We think we have explained it. We also should be clear that application is about, item C there, the attitude or behavior that a biblical truth requires. It's not just behavior. Application is often about attitude. And for those of the preachers in the room, I'll just say, who are the preachers we like listening to? Probably not the guys who've been at it for three years, but the guys who've been at it for 30 years. And if you listen to the guys who've been preaching, not for three years, but 30 years, you begin to discern most of the time something has changed. When we start preaching, we are almost all behavior-oriented only, right? Do this better. Um, treat people this way. Uh, do this thing. Do these five things. I, I hadn't even thought about it before this sermon, but they told me I'm supposed to do application in seminary. So here's five things for you to do as a consequence of this sermon. The people that you love listening to are those who have been preaching for 30 years, and it's amazing how much they are dealing with the heart before they ever get to the duty. And the reason is they've discovered something. Now, you won't like this. Ready? You ready? It is. When you tell people what to do in a discipleship group, in a sermon, in a Sunday school lesson, you almost never tell them to do something they didn't already know to do before they sat down. You tell me I shouldn't lie? Oh, really? Is that in the Bible? Well, I never thought about that before. I mean, surely they know it's in the Bible. (laughs) What are you going to tell people to do that they don't know already to do? The issue is usually not that they don't know what to do. The issue is that their heart is not set on doing it. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Who are the preachers that we love listening to? The ones who are after our hearts. They are after our hearts. And they know that if I get your behavior without your heart, I really haven't succeeded at all. I want your heart. And if you say what I want your heart, I I recognize I'm after conviction. I'm after love. That is, you to love God because he first loved you. I'm, 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 I'm after the heart attitude. And that's why we have to say, if we're doing application, the best application is is considering attitude as well as behavior. If it's only behavior, we actually end up burdening people. Here's, here's more for you to do, more for you to do, more for you to do, more for you to do. And, and that, while necessary, is not uh, sufficient. If you think about how important is, is application, um, I'll go through this real quick. Uh, John Broadus, some of you may or may not know that name, he's known as the father of expository preaching. So most people in Bible-believing churches say, my goal is to explain the text I'm in. That's known as expounding the text, explaining, showing its implications of the text. And in American culture, the primary purpose, person who taught us how to do that was somebody named John Broadus. So uh, he was known as the father of expository preaching. And uh, he said... Um, that if you look at almost any sermon, which is most sermons are built something like this. Explanation, illustration, application. Explain the truth, demonstrate the truth, 
apply the truth. That's just kind of standard, logical way of explaining people, explaining things to people. Let me tell you the meaning, then I'll demonstrate it, then I'll apply it. Make sense? Kind of, and, and most sermons, at least components of them, are built this way. Most Sunday school lessons are built this way. Most Bible study groups are built this way, right? Let me explain, let me illustrate, let me apply. If you're talking to the father of expository preaching, the one who taught us how we're going to explain the text in this culture, which of these do you think he would say is most important? Father of expository preaching, which is most important? Explanation, illustration, application, which do you think he would say? You're too smart. Yeah. You'd think he would say explanation, but in fact, what did he say? Application. Data without significance is only a burden. Now, that changes what you think is happening when you present Bible messages. What we tend to think is, I am, I am doing illustrations and my outline and my explanations and my definitions, all to move the big rock of explanation. You know, that, that's why I'm presenting this message, to explain the text. But John Broda said, actually, that's not why you and I are, are here today. That the main reason that we are going through the scriptures is to apply the text. On the basis of sound exposition, yes, but my goal is that you would know the significance of this, not just so that you would have lots of information, right? We're not kind of just accumulating information for information's sake. Our goal is application. So among preachers, we have to kind of say it simply, we are not ministers of information. We are not ministers of information. We are ministers of transformation. We are ministers of transfer. If I get in that I'm a minister of information, I move into the lecture mode, right? Here's just stuff for you to know for the test next week. Sadly, most people are not gonna be around for the test next week, right? So we're just doing information, 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 which what our people came for, what they're desperate for, what they're longing for is application. What's the significance of this? So I don't mean to hurt people, but I'll just talk from my own experience. So we recognize that our temptation, whether we're in this Sunday school class, whether we're in the small group, is to say to people, now, Israel was in the desert for 40 years. Now, where they were in the desert is right here north of Egypt in the Sinai. And it's a very desert region here, and there's not much water, and it goes for about 40 miles before you go down so many feet to the Dead Sea, and the feet down to the Dead Sea is because it's at the lowest elevation face it. And people are saying, my husband is leaving. My daughter did not come home last night. I don't know if I got a job after next week. And the elevation from Galilee to the... All that may be necessary, but what are people... I mean, why did they, they showed up for the same reason you showed up. I want to know how this helps me. I want to know the significance of this. Now, we can do this. 
we can do this. To recognize that the children of Israel, after they came out of Egypt, were in a certain sense in a wet, worse circumstance. And yet God provided for people for whom there was no obvious hope at all. And the significance of that is God saying, I can rescue you not just from slavery, I can rescue you from the desert. Not just from the captivity to your sin, but actually when it seems that everybody and everything else has abandoned you in this life, I'm still there. What's the significance as well as the meaning? That's that all these things are still going to be said. The definitions, the explanation, the but what we're trying to do is tell people the significance instead of the data dump, right? So having said that, we're really saying that becomes important. So if you're asking the question, how important is this application, making people know the significance? Not only does John Broadus say it's the main thing to be done, if you're from Reformed backgrounds, John Calvin, and those of us who are Presbyterians, if we ever get near to heresy, we always quote Calvin, because people will believe him if they won't believe us. Uh, and he said, if we leave it to men's choice to follow what is taught them, they will never move one foot. The doctrine of itself can profit nothing at all. Boy, if I'd said that, I'd be in big trouble in my church. The doctrine of itself can profit nothing at all. But you and I know that's true. I mean, we know people, I'm guessing, in all our churches whose doctrine is near perfect. I mean, they, they know the truth. They know exactly when Jesus is coming back. They, you know, they, they, you know they, they, they've got predestination nailed you know, they, they got it all figured out. And their hearts seem to be a long way from the Lord Jesus and how they treat people and how they treat their families and what they expect of other people. They seem to be a long way off. It's, it's not enough just to know good stuff and even have it all perfectly figured out. Even Calvin said the doctrine of itself can profit nothing at all. So not duty by itself, not doctrine by itself is our purpose. It's even our generational experience. Um, just as we, sometimes people say, it's not my job to apply the text. That, by, who is job is it, by the way? If it's not my job to apply the text, who do they usually say? Yeah, you're saying, it's the Holy Spirit. So I, I, it's not my job to apply. The Holy Spirit should be applying the text. Well... If I tell you on the authority of the word of God that you should not apply the text, what did I just do? I just applied the text <laughs> to tell you you should not apply the text, right? Um, just, just to be clear, um, it is true that the Holy Spirit applies the text to our hearts. Who actually explains the text to our minds? Who's the great interpreter of the text? Rob? the Holy Spirit. And hardly any preacher in the room is going to say, well, good, I don't have to explain either. I'll just read the Bible all sermon long, you know. I'm not going to explain or apply. No, even though the Holy Spirit applies the text, and even though the Holy Spirit interprets the text, it's still our job, if we're really to help people, to say, I'm going to explain the text, and I'm going to apply the text, because that's what the Holy Spirit gave me to do. If we don't do so, there's a lot of damage that can be done. So here's the hard part of the conversation. I've already said to you, most people in the church already know what to do before you ever told them what to do. So you'd say, well, then I don't need to apply the text. They will figure it out. 
we should well know in Bible-believing, evangelical, Christ-centered churches how well people are following the instruction of Scripture with regard to application. Now, these are not stats that we love. How different are people who claim to be born-again, Bible-believing, how different are their abortion practices than the rest of culture? Anybody know? Not different at all. About the same percentage. People claim to be born again. Um, how different are the pornography practices? Actually higher among those who claim to be evangelical. Uh, how different uh, incidents of drunk driving? Higher. Among those who claim to be born again, the incidence of drunk driving actually goes up after people claim to be born again. Higher. Why is that? So often people are desperate already, so they try Jesus' last resort, and the way they try it doesn't really solve things. So the incidence of drunk driving and addictions is actually higher among those who claim to be evangelical, born-again Christians, rather than the rest of culture. If you look at almost any demographic, what are the movies that we watch? What are the marriages that come undone? Um, now, that's a debatable one. You know, we usually say in this culture about 50% of marriages come undone. And uh, at least uh, Focus on the Family has done the research to challenge that, whether, whether evangelical Bible-believing marriages last any longer than other marriages. And they say it's not true that evangelical marriages come undone at the same rate as the rest of culture. Rest of culture, American culture, 50% of marriages come undone. But, thankfully, evangelical Bible-believing marriages, only 37% of them come undone. I go, that's actually still pretty high. What are we learning? People sit in our churches, they hear our messages, we explain the Bible, and they don't seem to get the significance. Their patterns of behavior are almost not different at all from the rest of the secular culture. So if we say they will figure it out, we may wonder what is our job as disciples? How can we help people? really understand the significance in such a way that is transformative and not merely informative. This is going to kind of be fun, I hope, a little bit before lunch. If you're thinking about why should we do application, it's, it's not just because you're trying to help people know how the text is significant. It's because they will not listen to you, not over time. They will not listen to you if your application is not communicating the significance of the text. They will not listen to you if you're not uh, helping them understand the significance of the text. Um, long ago, no matter what message you do, it could be preaching, it could be a Sunday school lesson, it could be a small group, whatever it is, we know that any message, if people are going to listen to it and can listen to it, always has three components. Uh, those of you who have seminary background, we call these logos, pathos, and ethos. For any message to be heard and responded to, it first of all has to have verbal content. <laughs> I got to say something, right? So it has to have verbal content. It has to make sense. It has to be organized, right? So, you know, it's got to be organized in some way. The words must make sense. People have to understand the definitions. That's, what does logos mean? A lot of you know. What does logos mean? Word, Right. So, you know, one aspect of any message that you give, it's got to have discernible verbal content, right? Something that you might not have thought about is um, in order for the message to be 
heard, it must also have appropriate pathos. Pathos is what is sometimes called the emotive content. Now, in this kind of evangelical culture, we're sometimes very suspicious of pathos because no one wants to be a manipulator, right? Or if they do, you don't want to listen to them, right? So, you know, so you say, there's emotive content? I mean, why should that affect things? Because how you are responding to the text is your testimony of the truth of the text. How I'm responding to the text is my testimony of its truth. And one of the things that preachers are taught in seminary is, if manner contradicts message, it's manner that will be believed. Hear that? If manner contradicts message, it's manner that will be believed. This message brings me tremendous joy. <laughs> well, it doesn't appear to. <laughs> um, this, boy, this is really, really important. If you don't believe me, you'll go to hell. <laughs> it's really, really important, and you're yawning through it? What more often happens, uh, you know, those of us who are males in, uh, in Western culture is, you know, we are trying not to show emotion. So everything kind of flattens out, right? And I recognize there's different personalities. But if we are saying this is eternal, this is gospel, this is important, this will transform your life, this is the hope of the gospel, this is the joy of the gospel. All those things are ways that we are communicating uh, this is true. It's true to me because if I don't seem to communicate its truth, uh, then I, so, you know, I, I would just tell you, you know, I'm contemplating a call to a former student even at this time because he asked me to look at his um, video at his uh, church in which he's kind of explaining uh, what his church is about. So it's one of those introductory videos that's on a lot of websites these days. And he... <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this. It is the most morose, frowning, you know, kind because of, he's so serious. And I'm, how do I tell him? Nobody's going to want to come to your church if they watch your introductory video, right? <laughs> because, because the manner is so contrary to the message. Even though I know it's out of his seriousness and he intends well and all that, but it, 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 it doesn't work. So, you know, Spurgeon, the great preacher, you know, understanding the importance of, of uh, pathos, you know, talked to young men in his era, and, and he said, so, so when you speak of heaven, you know, let your face be irradiated with the joy of the glories of Christ's coming. And when you speak of hell, well, then your regular face will do. <laughs> But uh, we do understand if manner contradicts message, it's manner that will be believed. But the last thing that we all kind of hate is ethos. And ethos is the perceived, I'm sorry, I before E except after C, uh, perceived character. The perceived character of the speaker. What do people believe about you? Are you a person of goodwill? Do you intend their good? Do you intend to do God's work? Or are you about your status? 
You want people to respect you or honor God? What, what are they thinking about you as you present? Because what they think about you is affecting how they're able to receive what you're saying. Now, there are things that very strongly affect this perception of your character. And I've just kind of put them here on your notes. What I sometimes call the C and the C. When people are evaluating your ethos, they are evaluating, do you see that down at the bottom of the page? Your credibility and compassion. Credibility and compassion. Now, it is true that part of credibility is, do you have knowledge of what you're talking about? So, it's important that we study the text, that we know, you know what meaning is there, that we're able to say who Nebuchadnezzar was, um, that, that, that we, we know that the people of God are in, are, are in exile and slavery when Daniel is doing his prophet. You know, that's just, you need to know you're, you're, you're the Bible study presenter. You're supposed to know that stuff. And so it's important that you know your world. You have knowledge of what you're supposed to know if you're presenting. And so you, you go to courses like this and study the Bible so that you'll be credible. But there's another aspect of credibility than you're knowing your world of the Bible. What also affects credibility? Not just you're knowing your world. What does the listener expect you to know for you to be credible? Do you know? Do you know my world? One of the reasons that we do application, what's the significance of this? Instead of, you know, 40 years in the time of Israel was da 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 is if we cannot connect the scriptures to individuals' world, we're not credible. We're not people don't think we know what we're talking. Yeah, you have Bible facts, but you don't understand my world. So application is saying, when I can tell you the significance of this for your world, I'm now credible. And if I can't tell you the significance for your world, I will not hear you. Now, the other C is compassion. Not just do I understand your world, but do I seem to care. And compassion for those who deal a lot in the areas of my business, which is learning, helping people learn to preach, is altruistic care. Do I seem to care about you or me when I'm speaking? Is the greater attention on respect for me, my authority, my acclaim, or is the greater care for you? Am I speaking with altruistic care? And clearly what affects that the most is altruistic courage. So for those of you who have Lutheran background, perhaps, this is Luther's theology of the cross, that anyone who is called to disciple others, anyone who's called to be a disciple of Christ, must take up his cross daily and follow Christ. And part of being a discipler is being a disciple who is willing to sacrifice as Jesus did. To say hard things when they must be said. Because the scriptures say it. So I put myself at risk for your sake. I say things that must be said. Nothing sadder in my years 
uh, of being a seminary president for a few decades than at some point a man coming to me out of his church and saying, you know, would you help me with uh, this business decision I need to make? I said, I'm, I'm happy to help you, but why not ask your pastor? And he said, my pastor will only tell me what I want to hear. And I got it. He will not put himself at risk. He'll only tell me what I want to hear. If we are really speaking with compassion, people understand that not only means putting things at the shelf level of their lives, it also means I will say what's hard and difficult and may even, may even hurt me for your sake. And then I recognize you truly are standing in the place of Christ for me, that you are you're representing him as you speak. And you may think that's not my job, but it actually is, right? We, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, is what the apostle would say, so that we're presenting him. So the reason that we do application is not just because they tell us that we won't communicate if we don't tell the significance, is because we ultimately recognize that by coming into people's lives, here's the significance of this. And, and I recognize my goal here is not just to make you think I'm smart, but to help you grow in your relationship with the Lord, even telling you hard things, if they must be said, is what will help people listen to us and actually believe the scriptures and be transformed. We actually trust in God as we teach. We are trusting God as we teach. And that's how we begin to help disciple others.